You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book so you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Because our Dungeons and Dragons group kicked us out and we need a new fantasy world to get invested in. <laughs> my name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, whose forthcoming 3,000-page historical fiction novel, written entirely in Esperanto, has been reviewed as available on Amazon. <laughs> Benedict, where do we sit on spicy mustard versus regular mustard? Ooh, what are you defining as spicy mustard? Like a Dijon so, or just like a... I so there there are a variety of spicy mustards out there, uh-huh. right? And I I have I have some stone ground mustard in the fridge right now sure. that I used on uh, on one of my famous sandwiches uh, uh-huh. not long ago. Because occasionally you want a little bit of that kick, right? Yep. And I th- I'm I'm ninety percent sure that they just throw some horseradish in there. I'm I'm ninety percent sure that's all they do to make it spicy. <laughs> Everything else is lies. And I also have the obligatory French's yellow mustard because it's. What goes on ninety percent of the stuff, and I, you know, I love mustard. I eat a lot of mustard. Yeah, and and I, so French's is the only that I will consider. I will not buy any other brand of mustard. Nothing else is real. I would always but, do a spicy mustard. I think always a spicy mustard. Yeah, because English mustard is spicy, like properly spicy mustard. So that's what I grow up with. So, but does it have like I'm described? So I, I told you I had that that mustard I think just has some horseradish thrown in there mm. to make it spicy. Is it a different kind of spicy you're describing? Like, because I know a Dijon right has a little bit of kick to it, uh, and for all I know, that might be hor- I don't know that might be the recipe. Horseradish might be the recipe for spicy mustard. I have no idea what goes into it because I've never made mustard. I'm not that much of a hipster. But I, uh, do you like know. that? Is it that? Is it that what you're talking about? Like a Dijon? Or is there no, something so different it's, about it's something, British mustard? It's, it's called Coleman's English mustard is what kind of what I know and what I grew up with. I don't know whether it's horse or... But it's that like um, like behind your nose spicy, you know? Yeah, yeah that's what I associate with the horseradish. Yeah. That's why Yeah, I so th- it might be that. It could just be similar flavors. I have no idea. But so, I, and so I'm opposite of you. Occasionally I like the spicy mustard, but usually I just go for the French's yellow. Cause that's that's that that's that gold that's that good stuff, man. That's what I'm waiting for. No, I for. get it. I get it. We just didn't. I mean, in the UK, weirdly, the one thing we're like is like, yes, we'll have very hot horseradish and mustard, but no other flavor to our food. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I've experienced this. <laughs> and don't forget vinegar. Don't forget vinegar. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I think I've talked before about how I tried to do a, a British food themed uh, dinner night for one of my famous dinner nights where I host all my friends, uh, and I couldn't find anything I wanted to eat. So. Can I just say, that I'm looking, I'm looking at the reviews of because I was trying to find the ingredients and it has like community reviews of the mustard. And like the first <laughs> one that comes up 
is was introduced to Coleman's by my grandfather and I am 76 now. Like nothing about the quality of the mustard. And that's from Bob. But is H. there a more is there a more British statement than that though? Yeah, no. So another one is I've been using this mustard for eight years. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Tyler. Uh, now that's my kind of mustard from Janine. <laughs> so I like the first two. The idea of quality not being measured in whether you like or dislike something, but in amount of time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, this has been uh, not your grandmother's mustard club. Uh, yep. Why don't we move? No, on? it very much is his grandmother's mustard club. They're all seven. <laughs> very good point, Benedict. Do you have any hot takes for us this I week? do, and it's a very, it's a very non-mustardy hot take. Um, it is that having enough shelves for all your books is cool and good. Cause I can agree. You, I used to, until today, when we got a new bookcase delivered and assembled in the IKEA fashion, mm-hmm. um, with much, much splinters and wailing. Um, I had literally <laughs> dubbed... <laughs> no, I got to interrupt you there. Because I like the idea of replacing all the, the tortures of Dante's Inferno <laughs> with much splinters and wailing. <laughs> Very good. No, so I used to, you know those like Ikea cube things? You've seen my uh-huh. apartment. Like it, I, yeah. we, I have the Ikea like eight cube and I had literally double stuffed that. I'm, I'm sorry, books. it's pronounced cube. Cube. Cuba, I yeah. think, actually, mm-hmm. is the proper yeah. Swedish. Um, but yeah, it was it was filled so that like I couldn't even see the back layer of books. So I had to make judgment calls on which books I wanted to read <laughs> in what order and build the bookcase like that. And then now I can actually see all my books for the first time and I think like that three is, years. And, and you, you gave me the, the five cent tour earlier today yep. by, you know, moving your, your computer screen around so I could see it right. through the camera. And I got to say... Um, I've been at your place previously for the old arrangement, right? Before mm-hmm. the, the couch movement and the, yeah, the new yeah. art on the walls. I got to say, you, man, you put together a, a, if I, not to be too harsh, but a swell looking apartment. Oh, oh, thank swell. you very much. That means a lot, Kevin. It really does. It really does. You're welcome. Do you have a hot take? Yes, uh, I have, as you wrote succinctly in our notes, some shit about parks. Yeah, I wasn't uh, really listening when you said what it was going to be, so I just <laughs> like, I don't know, something about parks. So uh, I, I went on a date. I went on a date earlier today, Aww, uh, which was nice, and, and and because it's Rona, right, and uh, we all uh, we want to be safe, and plus, um, most women, understandably, are worried that anyone they meet off of the various dating apps is going to murder them. Uh, we met in public, uh, and we went. We met at a park. We met at I think it, I, I forget the name already, but I think it's called Rock Creek Park here in D.C., which is a lovely park. We, we spent the afternoon. You know, we had a little picnic, and then we walked around with the hiking trails. It was really great. You know, there's a little creek that runs through there and everything, and really a lot of fun. But my hot take is, I think parks are underrated yeah. because when and I'll tell this story. I'm not embarrassed by this. Yesterday, I was preparing to do this show, and I try and write down my hot takes ahead of time so that I'm prepared, unlike you, yes. Uh, And I had written down, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do at a park as an adult. Because, A, I was thinking, I I had never been to this park before, so I didn't know there was more like hiking trails and stuff like that. I was picturing like, you know, a a park with grass and a playground and things. And so, uh, I think now, after being at this park all day, Parks are awesome, and we need more parks. 
Which should be, That's I right. mean, like when, when you visited me when I lived in Berkeley, we went to Golden Gate Park, yeah. right? Which is, is, I think, more in the vein of this type of park, right? Where mm. open expanse with lots of areas to go and explore um, versus the, you know, like in a city, in the middle of a city where you get a park, which is like half a block with uh, some grass and a playground, like I was talking Clearly about. you've never been we, to Central Park. Well, more I than have, half a block. I've been there with you, but I'm talking about, we need more of both kind of parks, right? Yeah, we need yeah. more of both. We need more green spaces in our communities. To be uh, fair, I think like most of America is parks. We just don't spend much time in those bits of America. <laughs> I've driven through those bits of America, my friend, yeah. and I wouldn't call them parks so much as fields of corn or yeah. AKA the entirety of Nebraska. <laughs> That's it yeah. for my hot take. I really, All I right. really enjoyed the day at the park. Uh, and right. I'm not just saying this because I know uh, that the person I was on a date with listens to the show now. Uh, but I really Hello did enjoy Hello and welcome <laughs> to this person. I really did enjoy my day at the park. It was very Cute. nice. But, Benedict, let's move on a little bit. Uh, what's on your bookshelf this week? On my bookshelf this week is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which is, I think, a Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction book about the Great Migrations and uh, black people moving up from the South to the North and West in search of a better life and to get away from the South at the time, which obviously was not a good place to be for them. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> still, yeah. still not a great place not, to be. I mean, honestly, most them. of America, not a great place to be. But, this is you true. Know, All anyway, right. What excellent. about you? And this week I am, uh, I am being respectful. I also have a book and it's also a nonfiction book. Uh, I am suggesting Evicted. By Matthew Desmond, uh, who is a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient and I think professor at Princeton. Um, and the store in the in the book, he follows uh, several families in Milwaukee who are facing housing instability. Um, and uh, I am I think I've, I don't know if I've talked about this yet on the show or not, but this this semester I am taking part in a uh, legal clinic here in D.C. Uh, cool. called Rising for Justice, um, which supports. Uh, families and, and individuals uh, in landlord-tenant court in D.C. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, right, right now in D.C., uh, evictions are stayed for the duration of the crisis. Uh, but, of course, landlords have not let that get in the way of trying to force people out of their homes. No. And there is a cycle. I, I just went through an entire week-long orientation for this clinic where I'm going to be actually practicing law under the supervision of a, a licensed attorney. Um, and it is horrifying some of the things that I, I, you know, I had a vague sense that, yeah, obviously it's very bad for people who are living in, in low income and have issues with rent stability and things like that. I had no clue how bad it could be. And this book was one that was suggested uh, before the orientation and then I picked up and read. And it is eye-opening how, yeah. how the struggle is for people who are living in you know, the projects or in various mm. uh, federal or state or local programs for housing and how hard it is to maintain that life and how you get trapped in that cycle. So did I very much recommend it. Did you ever read, um, I recommended this a few weeks ago and I just, I got around to reading it after I recommended it, but The Color of Law by uh, Richard Rothstein. Rothstein no, I, no <laughs> I, never, I never got around to reading that. So it, it's about like the redlining of African-American districts right. and, and how your segregation basically was created in America um, and still exists in lots yeah. of places. 
I think that's something that was referenced in in several things. As part of this orientation, we were recommended to watch two documentaries, uh, Chocolate City and What Happened to Chocolate City, which are both about Washington, D.C., and are fantastic documentaries. And I'm pretty sure they were referenced at one point. Uh, That book, Color of Law, was referenced. um, Because redlining is how we got to where the fuck we are. Yeah, it's not great. And how how the projects were created and, and... Like, federal housing used to be for middle-class families, and then they were like, no, everyone should own a house, but not black people. Yeah. They can... So, fucked, anyway, man. read Bad that situation. book. It's really good. Like, along with Evicted, I think a, The Color of Law would be a great companion read to that. Excellent Anyway, should we talk about shitty books? <laughs> yeah, so, a little bit of housekeeping before we get on to uh, the, the main thrust of the episode this week, and that is just that uh, we are going to be doing the uh, drawing to give away our copies of Triggered by Donald Trump Jr. over on this month's patron-only bonus episode, uh, which will probably be coming, uh, if I had to guess, uh, very end of the month, because I just looked at the calendar, and next Sunday is the the 30th, when I know we'll be recording it. We always end up doing it at the very end of the month, Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess that keeps it on a semi-regular schedule. Uh, So we'll be doing that towards uh, the end of next week. And then uh, the winners, we can contact, get your information, and send you our copies of the books, along with the, I like to think, very nice messages that we write in them for you, as well as all of our scribbled notes in the margins. So we'll be doing that. You want to become a patron? Honestly, most of my notes are what the fuck and lol. And there's not that much space, so it's just like me putting exclamation points next to things that I've underlined. This is what we need, books with wider margins, honestly. I have thought that so many times throughout the book reviews that we do uh but yeah if you want to be uh involved in that or if you like to if you like the show and you want to support us remember to go over to patreon.com forward slash nygbc become a patron for as little as two dollars an episode and with that it's time to get on to our recap if you will of triggered by donald trump jr and uh, and as soon as we're done with this recap we will be of course moving on to introduce the next book we'll be reviewing the right side of history by ben shapiro but bennett to guide our conversation, to get us started here, I wanted to start off, because we, we sort of got into this at the end of the last episode, but I want to go back to it now that we've had a week to digest and think about it, and I know I've been thinking about it. Have we learned anything from reading Triggered? I think, I, I, I mean, on a large level, I've learned that there is a template for these books Mm-hmm. that I think is fairly existent. And and that's not to say that such a template doesn't exist for other types of political writing. I think that that's probably something that also is there. It's just this is the least interesting template that exists to me, which is part memoir, part airing of grievances with mostly no evidence. And then part, this is what I've done that's good. Like, so to me that... that that's what I've learned most is like these books are kind of all the same in that sense. I, um, ag- I agree with you that there is a, a large level of similarity that is worrying, particularly for the future existence of this podcast, because yeah. we keep reading these books and go, man, we've heard that. We've heard that argument before. We've gotten that from Dinesh D'Souza or whoever the fuck was the last person we read. Right. So we keep running into the the same cores run through all of them certainly and yeah. the same bull and i think it's recycling a lot of bullshit arguments from other writers in that sphere that they then bring out because they're not creative enough to come up with anything well that's themselves. the thing i mean I, I don't particularly think there's an original thought in this oh i book. agree with that a hundred percent not a single original thought i mean even even the 
the stories about himself told through the lens of his father <laughs> most of the time. Don't forget, so, the, don't forget the frat party, though. That was 100% him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were certainly a few original fictional ideas. But, yeah, nothing... Uh, but, yeah, essentially, it's it's... There's not a lot of there there, to be honest. It's it's a slow read. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've learned I probably wouldn't bother with his books in the future, I don't think. I think it was a good one for us to start with just because of his proximity to power. I think someone's proximity to power is always interesting in how they write and think. But I think there are probably more interesting writers on the right and probably... There are people that are influential to Don Jr.'s way of thinking that are probably more useful to read than Don Jr. regurgitating those ideas. True. I agree. Charlie Kirk would have been more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. y- you know. Dinesh, exactly. Dinesh is more interesting. Um, you know, even probably Rush Limbaugh is more interesting. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. I think we got the best when we the very first review we ever did was Dinesh D'Souza yeah. because we got a bite of that apple, man. We got some very crazy stuff from Dinesh D'Souza, and we've been chasing that horse ever since. We've yeah. never been able to get that same high because it just doesn't come to that level. We've been I, searching I'm, for it, but can't find it. I'm actually hoping, I'm hoping Ben Shapiro provides that to a level because he does seem to be less influenced by what other people on the right are saying like he does at least seem to have some a a streak of independence within himself like he he he's one of those people that maintains that air of oh i'll criticize my own party if they're wrong but i just think they're right 99.9 percent of the time yeah but it's that 0.1 percent that i'm interested in um and where that disalignment comes from and i hope that sorry i'm very academic this episode i'm not making a lot of jokes but i'm, doing, I'm on the literary analysis side of it but that's that's what i'm interested in well so so just to continue on what do you think was the most egregious chapter of trigger okay you're gonna have to give me a second you're gonna have to give me a second while i look through why don't you why don't you say yours and so then I'll, uh, my, I think I have a tie, right? I mean, the the anti-trans chapter was pretty yeah. awful. That was in terms of just like a, a, an assault of awfulness. I just out front of, bigotry. Yeah. yeah. I think in terms of just the writing, I think I, mm, I hated the one with the frat party, which the back to school one, I think. That was, um, I mean, that, I, I, those earlier chapters, I think I look back at wistfully. With sort of a, an, uh, an awe and a sense of wonderment no, I, for I where we went from there. I hated Back to School and I hated Not Your Grandfather's Democrat Party. I just thought those were incredibly yeah. dumb. And he was actually trying to make arguments there as opposed to like the normal. Like all the social media stuff is just so inconsequential to me. Like it just doesn't matter. And like the, the stuff around actual politics and not like I'm being silenced is more real world important and therefore has the potential to annoy me more okay so for me i think it's a tie because and mm-hmm. i think you know which two chapters i'm gonna say because you've experienced this with me my uh-huh. anger my flush red face as i yell yeah. into the microphone no, the, uh, the trans uh, the trans chapter and the immigrant chapter would be my my guesses 
No, no, actually, I was because the immigrant chapter. I think. Hold on, which was the where... one way the uh, the extremism chapter? The, yes, the, that, yes, that's what I meant. I think Sorry. with the with the anti-immigrant stuff, we expect that, and that yeah. that we're so used to hearing those same boilerplate bullshit anti-immigrant arguments, and the faux covering it up with "I'm not against all immigrants, just illegal ones," right? Yeah, we're used yeah. to that shit. So I think that didn't anger me so much because I was so used to that. But oh, ju- right. Jussie Smollett and the faux trade orchestra. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that 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 one. That one annoyed me just because of the fucking yes. name. Like. The, ch- the, the anti-trans chapter and the chapter where he denied that his father has ever inspired any sort of violence, mm. to which, of course, I brought all the fucking receipts. Um, those two, I think, pissed me off worse than anything else in this book. One for just its outright bigotry, and the other for the refusal to take any responsibility whatsoever for something that is so clearly and easily provable by a basic Google search. Uh, that, I mean, because I remember, I remember what I talked about when we were doing the Jussie Smollett chapter, right? Mm-hmm. It took me literally about an hour to get all those, right? Because I had just done some basic Googling and was copying them over into the notes. And that was just like top-level search. I didn't have to look very hard to get all that stuff. Yeah. So I think that's what pissed me off a lot was that this is fucking obvious. You could address this. You could say, we deplore all violence. We think it's abhorrent. Everyone who thinks they're doing violence and are in support of us, you should fucking stop it. Don't attack immigrants. You could say all those things. But really, I think he does support those sort of actions. Yeah. So I don't think he would bother to denounce them in any sort. And the, when they have to, they do, right? The fucking Nazis and shit like that. They know it's just too bad of optics to not denounce them. But when it's you know shit like people attacking immigrants in a fucking gas station parking lot, mm-hmm. they don't have a fucking problem with it because they don't think those people deserve to be here. Yeah, they're monsters. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, all the fake stories annoy me as well. Like the yeah. you know, once I met this this Somali immigrant woman who loved Donald Trump. Like, that okay. leads me to my next my next question. Which was your favorite totally fake conversation Donnie uh, Jr. had not, in the book? Not conversation, but I thing that happened, and there were several. One of them was like, I didn't eat for seven days straight, which is like, <laughs> he said various times. And the, the other one was the frat party where he yeah. climbed on a table and people were scrambling to like touch his ankle and shit. Like that is absolutely my favorite. Yeah. Fake that was thing that happened. And then we got the pictures in the middle of the book, which I think were that story oh, yeah. where just like one person standing on the table so they could to have their phone out and fucking yeah. record him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was magnificent. My favorite, I think of those, uh, was the, the coffee shop was the, um, the immigrant woman working in a coffee shop who talked about he, she and her husband had voted for Donald Trump and, you know, that kind of shit. I think that was probably my favorite one because that one was just so fucking stupid and obviously fake. Yeah. I, I, that was hilarious. Now, also, like, it was a recent immigrant that had somehow voted. Like, he definitely got his story confused. Like, oh, absolutely. You, obviously, one is not allowed to do that. Well, it's easy to get your story confused when you make them up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's why and you then, don't like course, kids. <laughs> and then calling all those people his friends. That was just hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, you know, we, we've done a lot of it, but, but if, if you had to summarize this book okay. in just a couple short sentences, how would you summarize it? Um, do you want me to try and be funny or do you want me to <laughs> However you think is appropriate. I, I think it's someone reckoning with their role in this world that will always be inferior to their father and trying to justify that through a lens of politics. 
Very good. And I was going to go similarly. I was going to say someone trying to justify their existence. Yeah. <laughs> despite having almost zero accomplishments to their name. So yeah. we're simpatico, my friend. We there are simpatico. There you go. But that's, uh, that's, I think we, you know, we may reference the book in the future, but uh, we're Is that it? Can I throw it. this fucker out? I mean, send it to a patron. <laughs> well, I have one final question. And that is, how do we feel having gotten through this book? What are our, what's our emotional denouement having been Ooh. through this book? Denouement, I like that. Um, relieved to have closed it. Um, I think a little... <laughs> a little saddened that it's a bestseller. Yeah. Just because I know it's a, a dagger bestseller, but it's still like a fuck ton of people bought this book. Yeah. Um, and a fuck ton of people liked this book. And I think it speaks to the level of polarization in. I don't know how many people are buying the book and reading it and giving it five stars. Like maybe it's a lot of people. Maybe people just read the headline. Um, you know. I, I don't know, but a, a little saddened by the level of polarization that there has to be for this book to exist as yeah. a viable commercial project. Yeah, and I said similar at the end of the last episode, and that's what I'm going with, is is slightly depressed. Yeah. A, like you said, that it sold so well, and I, I agree with you. I don't think that, uh, although the dagger is there, I think that certainly maybe it wouldn't have made it as high on the charts without that, without the bulk purchases. But certainly because of who he is, it would have still sold very well. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how many people actually read it versus just stuck it on a shelf because they think that makes them look smart, which is sad in and of itself. But there is a certain depressing element of, yeah, a lot of people read and agreed with this book. Mm. And I don't know if my father read it because when I went, you know, I always, I always tell you when I go home to visit uh, what books I see on my dad's uh, book stack sitting next to his spot on the couch. I have not seen this one there, thankfully. That's and great. I don't think he would buy this one. But he does have our next book there. And Ooh, that okay. is where we're going to pivot into the next book we're going to be reading the Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro, <laughs> the Benest of Shapiros. Uh, and he does. My dad certainly does have this book sitting next to... And I don't know if he's actually read it. I'll be honest about that. But it is certainly sitting there on his book stack. So I know that this book, Ben Shapiro's, without a dagger, made it to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Okay. When, did, a week, when did it come out? This book came out in 2019. I'm not sure of the exact day. Um, I did not look that up when I was doing my research to prepare That's for this fine. episode. But my recollection is it was early-ish 2019. Okay. Just based on my memory uh, and how you, know, you and I sort of follow the release of right-wing books these days. Uh, so I was vaguely aware, I think, when this came out. But Benedict, how familiar are you with our friend Benny Shapiro? I think more than I would like to be, but not <laughs> as much as I would need to be, I would say. I, I kind of was aware of him during like the the Breitbart break, the break from Breitbart and the mm -hmm. 2016 years. Um, and then he pops up. He has moments of popping up just from me, like watching Michael Brooks and Sam Cedar occasionally and, and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, just... He is often a fertile dunking ground for mm -hmm. uh, people like that. And 
I'm sure we're going to talk about the uh, the P word. Mm-hmm. Yes, we in, are, my in friend. A, in a minute, but yes, we are. I don't. I haven't engaged with his arguments beyond like facts. Don't care about your feelings <laughs> for yes. a while. I'm yeah, going to so- do. I just want to warn the audience. I'm going to do a lot of Ben Shapiro impressions in this book because <laughs> it's one that I can kind of do. So. I gotta say, you did it for me earlier <laughs> off the air, and it was, uh, man, you you have some talent there, my friend. Some talent. <laughs> and look, look, it's no ideas, but <laughs> it's no it's no Dave Rubin, but my, you got you got something going. I'll give you all that. Right. So just to give us all an intro into uh, our dear Benny Shaps, um, we all know that he is best known for being too close to the camera when his picture is taken. Um, <laughs> he was not born. He actually appeared suddenly after Rachel Maddow looked into a mirror and whispered college Republican three times. (laughs) And he doesn't age. Actually, every three months, he emerges from a pupa to begin anew as a 19-year-old with a fresh copy of Atlas Shrugged in his hand. (laughs) Now, as as much as we like to make fun of Ben Shapiro, uh, we should recognize, of course, what he is most well-known for, which is, Benedict, drop that beat. (laughs) Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. His tasty motherfucking I said certified freak. Seven days a week. Wet ass P-word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah. 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 You effin' with some wet ass P-word. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P-word. Give me everything you've got for this wet ass P-word. Beat it up N-word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P-word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top if I want to ride. Add you a kangle while it's inside. Spit in my mouth. Look in my eyes. Insert record scratch sound effect. (laughs) That spit in my mouth is that no, never. (laughs) The funniest bit about that to me was when he came out afterwards and was like, you know, my wife's a doctor and actually she told me that uh, anatomically P-words can't get wet. And uh, and it was like absolutely dunking on himself. Like, ah, yeah. Yes, your wife has never been sexually satisfied. Good. Oh, Christ. So that, of course, is a remix of Benny <laughs> Shaps' uh, – I believe this was last week as we record. Uh, not the, not the week that just like passed, but the week prior. It feels like literally years ago. <laughs> when the music video came out for WAP, uh, Benny, of course, and the entirety of the right-wing media had an emotional freakout. And someone had to step forward to address that. And Benny himself decided, I am the one. Yeah, uh, and this recorded, is my time. <laughs> recorded the response, uh, which has not aged well at all. Oh, uh, but it, it 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 didn't come out well. Like no. it's not it's not that it was like everyone was like, yeah, that's the right take at the time. Like normally when something ages poorly, it's like, okay, I can see why they said this, but then like <laughs> context, context since has shown that maybe that wasn't the most advised take. This was never a well advised take. No, no. But I think we can all agree, based on that remix, uh, that Benny's rap game is... He, he's got a SoundCloud now, and I think he's trying to fill it out. He's going he's gonna to be working on new tracks in the, in the near future. Does, by the way, prove to me that having a daily radio show is just going to get you in trouble. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, if you talk on record for more than an hour a day, you are going to get remixed into shit. Is, like, it a, is it a radio show or is he... I thought... I didn't I know if he YouTube was still show. on the radio. I think it's a YouTube show. Yeah. But it's... I, uh, he, it, the format is a radio show. It's like him talking to camera and like talking to the mic as if he is... It's like a talk radio show. Exactly. It's, it's an Alex Jones show. 
Yeah. Uh, a, a slightly, slightly more credible Alex Jones show. Uh, but so just the actual background on Benny. He is actually fucking older than us. He is 36. Oh. Wow. He is 30 fucking six. That's he was good. born on January 15th, 1984. Okay. And I think where, and, and you know this, right? My experience, I was well aware of him in my high school years. I've talked many times about how I took a hard Wasn't right he like school. a young a young star, like from 19? Like he exactly. was writing for, yeah, okay. So he was, he graduated high school at 16 and graduated from UCLA at 20. What then a going to Why Harvard Law that? after that. What the fuck are well, you doing? Why, like, what's the point? What have you achieved? Like, oh, you graduated I, two years early. Congratulations. Who fucking cares? Like, why are you doing that? Now, like, also, it doesn't matter because he could never drink in college because he looks like a 13-year-old, even <laughs> at 37. So, Yeah, so I, I think, honestly, something has to be said about the fact that he went through high school and college so young. Because when you do that, and I, I've only known one other person who, never, who actually did it to a more extreme extent. When I was in community college, before I went to UC Berkeley, there was a kid who was 14 and graduating from community college. Why? But, because, and honestly, I think it has a lot to do with the parents forcing them into that sort of thing. Yeah. Because certainly these kids were smart. But you, you, you don't just come out and you're magical and you do all this stuff. Um, I think it has a lot to do with parents pressuring kids well, into that speeding through things maybe but the thing is, like i was asked to go up a year so but like i'm a i'm a summer baby so right. i would have been that's a lot I, different than i think this situation no 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 about. i was i was asked to go up a year on top of that so like i was asked so some of the kids that in the year they asked me to go into would have been nearly two years older right and when you're going through puberty that fucks you up developmentally like if you're yeah. two years younger than some of the people in your class like that is, you are ripe for bullying. Exactly. And I think a lot of it, and I think there's something to be said. A, it's the bullying aspect. That has to have something to do with how he developed and turned into an individual. I didn't do it, by but, the way. Like, I did, I, yeah. I, 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 my parents were like, if you want to do it, you have to go and spend time in the class. And I was like, I don't want to. So. <laughs> but I think there's also an element of when you do that, you don't have those chances to socialize and become a fully developed individual yeah. like you have when you go through you know, the normal progression, or at least as we think of it, the normal progression, knowing that normal is, you know, sort of an outdated idea and concept. But still, I think that, that when you do things faster and you're getting outside of the age range of people being similar to you, so you don't connect with them, you don't form those friendships, you don't grow as an individual. And I think that might explain something about how Ben became who he is. Because certainly there is an awkwardness there for him which he tries to cover up. But I think it's pretty apparent to people who, who are no reading people. And I don't want to say like body language and shit like that because a lot of that's pseudoscientific nonsense. But just by watching the guy, you do get an inner insecurity that's underneath everything he's trying to cover up. Yeah. Okay. I, so, but ben, I, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not the most experienced in, uh, <laughs> in the Shapiroverse, fortunately. <laughs> Yes. So, but I, I was vaguely aware of him during my time being a right-wing shitbag, right? Because, and I wouldn't I want to say vaguely, I was aware of him because he was, he was a syndicated columnist starting at age 17, uh, which I feel like is a problem. And we're going to get into why that's a problem, specifically given some of the things he's written in the past. But, yeah, I mean, I would be ashamed if anything I wrote at 17, just to, like the quality of the writing more than anything else. Like, you, you become <laughs> he's a got some problems writer beyond the quality of writing. 
yeah. So, so, but I, I think uh, I was vaguely aware of him, and I, I knew of him and the things he's writing. You know, I was heavy into Breitbart and stuff in, in those years. Um, but then, then around 2012 is when he actually joined Breitbart and came on as an editor at large. So, tw- tw- age 17, which would have been oh somewhere around. Uh, was that 2002 ish? Something like that. If you're born in 1984. Oh, that's a bad time. That's a I bad time that. for Republicans to be writing. Yes, it is. And in 2002, indeed, Benny wrote, quote, I am getting really sick of people who whine about civilian casualties. When he was talking about uh, newspapers quoting civilian casualties uh, in strikes in Afghanistan or the West Bank, who were oh, killed no. by American or Israeli troops, saying, quote, I don't really care. He said, following that, one American soldier is worth far more than an Afghan civilian, accusing Afghan civilians of being, quote, fundamentalist Muslims who provide cover for terrorists or give them money. No, I don't like that. Not a good quote. Nope. Which he, of course, later had to walk back once that became inconvenient for him. Uh, so, yes, years later, he did have to walk that back. He's and then in 2003. Most things. He's walked yes. back most of the things he's ever written. He, he, I think he accused Obama of wanting to start a race war and then had to walk that back as well. Like. He has walked back most of his career at this point. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, he, he's called, he called Obama a fascist. I think referring to his 2010 State of the Union, he called it characteristically fascist or something. like. It's, it was just boilerplate right-wing bullshit talk at the time, which doesn't give it a pass, right? Because yeah. there was nothing fascist about any of that. But it, it's nonsense. It's bullshit. Who gives a fuck? Of course, he's had to walk it back because he was a fucking kid. Remember, he started this at fucking 17. So 2003, yeah. he couldn't have been older than 23, 24. And he's writing this nonsense. It's getting syndicated and put out all over the country, which he later, of course, has to walk back. Because when you're a kid, you don't have well-formed fucking opinions, even if you're supposedly a savant like Benny is. <laughs> Uh, So in 2003, in the tradition of fascists of every generation, he published a calling demanding that Israel forcibly expel all Palestinians, not only from Israel proper, but from the West Bank and Gaza, and forcibly seize those areas. Of course, he has had to walk back that position as well, because it is remarkably fascist and terrible. Mm -hmm. In 2006, he called for sedition laws to be reinstated, a position he didn't walk back until 2018. Wow. Sedition laws, my Why friend. Why was he causing, calling for sedition laws in 2006? I think that was in response to criticism of the George Bush administration. Uh, uh. A bunch of commentators and political figures criticizing, criticizing the war on terror and other things uh, caused him to call for sedition laws to be reinstated. Good. And, and I, mentioned, I mentioned in 2012 he became an editor-at-large of Breitbart, a position he resigned in 2016 when Breitbart refused to support their reporter Michelle Fields in her claim of assault by Corey Lewandowski, even after video of the supposed assault, and, and I shouldn't say supposed, the assault were revealed. Uh, Breitbart, of, of course, is a piece of shit organization run by Steve Bannon, so what do you expect? Uh, it's not too surprising, and he should have known the people he was getting into bed with. Although, I think Andrew Breitbart might have been alive in 2012 when he started. I'm, I don't remember when Breitbart died. Mm. I think it was after that, I think. I, d- I, I couldn't remember off the top of my head. But, Benedict, there's more. There's more. In 2013, Benny mm. Shapiro became the subject of an episode of The Newsroom. When he published a story claiming that a group called Friends of Hamas had donated to Senator Chuck Hagel's re-election campaign. Okay. Now, 
I don't know if you ever watched the newsroom when I did it was. Not. Uh, I, did I, I don't not. remember if it was on HBO or Stars or Showtime. Didn't make it one to the those. UK. I'll tell you that much. Good show. Honestly, good show. I I I have a thing for uh, Aaron Sorkin. Right, Aaron Sorkin did The West Wing. And I'm just a fan of good, and people will always criticize the West Wing in the newsroom as being like idealistic and idealized forms of the way these things actually work, which, yeah, that's true. But it's just good schlock, and it's well done TV with excellently written dialogue, because that's Mm -hmm. what Sorkin does, right? Those long panning camera shots, the walk and talks, he's excellent at that kind of stuff, his shows are fun to watch, but uh, the newsroom... Uh, which was the show he had, I, I believe it was Showtime when it was airing. It was either Showtime or HBO. Um, had an episode in which one of the plot lines was that uh, a, a reporter working in this fictional newsroom had made a joke about a group called Daughters of Jihadi Excellence donating to a, a congressional candidate, or, or I don't remember, it was a candidate for something or other, uh, in which in the episode, uh, the people who picked up on it and reported it as real was the Gateway Pundit. Oh, good. Now, the reason why they had this episode, this plot line in the episode, was based on this article that Ben Shapiro published, where this is based off of a similar situation, where an individual made a joke claiming that a group called Friends of Hamas had donated to Chuck Hagel's uh, campaign, and Chuck Hagel was then at the time, I believe, under consideration by the Senate for some position or other in the Obama administration. Uh, And Benny Shapiro, of course, published this as though it was true. Only problem is, like in the newsroom episode and in this situation, no group called Friends of Hamas existed or ever has it? existed. Why would it? Because it was a fucking joke someone made. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Ben reported is true. <laughs> yeah. and, and funny enough, the situation was re- it, it came about again about six years after that. Uh, with someone raising the rumor against an Elizabeth Warren staffer. So in, uh, I want to say, 2018, mm. uh, someone, and I think it was like the Washington Free Beacon, which is a, a shit full right-wing rag, uh, ran a hit piece against a Warren staffer claiming basically the same thing, uh, which is just hilarious. And they, they basically just stole the idea that Shapiro came up with and, and ran with that. So it's excellent. I love that so much. Uh, that that then it made it into one of my favorite shows because the newsroom is excellent. It's just a really good show. You should check it out. Go watch The West Wing. It's all on Netflix. I love The West Wing. I don't care if you criticize me for loving The West Wing. <laughs> it was just a great show. You can't have it better than the walk and talk and the voice of Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> the the press secretary whose name I forget is now the voice of all of Kaiser Permanente. Oh, really? she, she does their radio ads. Yeah, that's right. and that's the, that's like a voice I grew up with because that was on all the radio and sac- Kaiser Permanente is a big hospital chain in California. I don't know yeah, if yeah. it's all over everywhere else, but uh, uh, I've heard she's the voice of all their ads. Anyways, uh, all that is to say, Benny's journalistic standards not so strong. Right. But now we get into his books. Oh, we got to think his journalistic standards, obviously not up to up to par exactly. How are his books? Well, Benny's been writing for years now, and he has a long string of books he's been putting out. And I got to say, he puts them out at about the rate of three books a year, That's which is problem. Books. It's problematic to me on its face, I have to say, because if you're writing three books a year, you're not taking the amount of time I think it takes to actually develop new ideas and write a thorough and thoughtful analysis of whatever it is you're trying to say. 
No. But based off of all of the titles and descriptions of, of his books I can find on Amazon, it seems to me that I'm probably correct, and he's just rehashing the same things over and over again. Okay. So to give you an idea of some of the books that Benny has written, that we will not be reading, uh, some of the other books he has put out uh, include this year from July 2020, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Is that a retrospective of the last four years? <laughs> Which I, I think he knew people would make that joke when he wrote it. Uh, <laughs> but, but according to the description on Amazon, uh, here's one of the lines from it. Who are the disintegrationists from Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States to the New York Times 1619 Project? Many modern analyses view American history through the lens of competing oppressions, a racist and corrupt experiment from the very beginning. They see American philosophy as a lie, beautiful words, words pasted over a thoroughly rotten system. They see America's cultures of rights as a facade that merely reinforces traditional hierarchies of power instead of being the only culture that guarantees freedom for individuals. Okay. So that gives us a general idea of how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Howard Zinn's People's History is a great book. 1619 Project book. is great. So, yeah. okay. From February of 2020, he published Catastrophic Thinking, which is a, a I want to say, a diatribe against woke culture and the woke inquisitors. So I have to assume there's a lot of cancel culture stuff in there. In uh, September of 2019. pro-free speech. Presumably, yes. Yeah. In September Sorry. of 2019, he published... Facts don't care about your feelings. His I don't care about your facts. <laughs> his catchphrase yeah. in book form. I think that's the only description that book needs. Yep. Uh, he also published that year, Whining Doesn't Win, in April 2019, which, surprisingly, being published only a month after The Right Side of History came out, I have to assume... Um, not that uh, not that thorough, not that thoroughly done is the only way I can I can assume about that. What the rest of these. Called? Sorry, uh, you broke up a sec. Whining doesn't win. Oh, yeah, it does. Yes. <laughs> you clearly never met a child. <laughs> but looking through some of it, I, it's all rehashing the same thing. I think you can get just based off of the titles that it's all pretty much the same thing. Evil in America, published in 2017. True Allegiance, published in 2016. A Moral Universe Torn Apart, 2016. The Left's Phantom Wars in 2015. It's all the same culture war bullshit that he's been doing forever. That's his entire grift. And I think it's a little different than what we've got from people like Dinesh D'Souza in that way, in that D'Souza at least tries to make sort of historical arguments, whereas I think mm. most of Ben's are based in the sort of pseudo-philosophical culture war bullshit we've gotten from the right for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I no, should I, also I mention... I should also mention his first book was published in 2004. And it, it's, it's great. It's titled brainwashed how universities indoctrinate america's youth this is of course um a year before he uh, the year i think that he graduated college and before he left to go off to harvard law school oh good so very good yes uh i can only assume that is magnificent although sadly we will not be reading that but bennett <laughs> we are here for a special purpose of course we are here for the right side of history, his most recent book. This mm -hmm. one we are going to be reading. This, of course, I mentioned, was released in 2019, one of the three books he released that year, and became a one, number one New York Times bestseller within a week of its release. Now, it is supposedly inspired by him being protested against at a college appearance in 2016 at California State University, Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And he attributed 
him getting protested to a decline in Judeo-Christian values in the United States, which I want you to just reflect on the hubris of thinking that the reason you're getting protested is because Judeo-Christian values (laughs) are on the decline in the United States. Love that. (laughs) Magnificent. It really is magnificent. But is it essentially, based on my skimming so far, an attempt to provide a stilted intro to philosophy book for right-wing zealots so they can toss out phrases they don't completely understand in completely inappropriate situations where they don't even fit. And that's not just based on my skimming, I should say. It's also based on my interactions with my own father, who I think (laughs) has read this book. (laughs) Because I have, in my flipping through, noticed a few things that are oddly reminiscent of things I've heard from my dad. But uh, I I do want to go over some of the blurbs on the back of the book. As we know, you know, you put out a book, you give it out in pre-release to a bunch of people to read and uh, and write reviews for. And uh, the the individuals on the back of this book include Arthur C. Brooks, author of The Conservative Heart and Love Your Enemies. And his review goes as follows, quote, It is easy to lose heart when we see tribalism and moral relativism washing across America. Ben Shapiro's The Right Side of History is a ray of hope showing a new generation of leaders how to defend the values that have made our country free and prosperous, and to do so with confidence and generosity. Next is a review by Jordan B. Peterson, author of 12 Rules for Life, (laughs) which I feel like we will have to do at some point in the future. And his book, his review goes, quote, This is a book for people dying to grow up. A book for a culture that risks devouring itself if the people who comprise it refuse to grow up. That was basically a rephrasing of the first sentence. Yep. (laughs) It's a book most suitable for our immature, confused, complex, but exceptionally promising time. I hope the wisdom it contains aids many a troubled soul in finding and treading the straight and narrow path and forward and uphill. Everything we have built, everything we currently have in our great good fortune— Depends more than we can possibly imagine on each of us managing to do precisely that. All right. Nonsense. It yeah. Is yeah, yeah, there's not a lot there. Next is a review by Daniel Hannon, author of Inventing Freedom. Quote, Ben Shapiro is blessed with the gift of taking complicated ideas and making them catchy. <laughs> okay. I think, I, think, I think this is a British MP, Daniel Hannon. I, think, I, I don't know if he is, but I love that so much because... It's it's almost getting the point. It's almost getting yeah, yeah. who Ben Shapiro is. Right. Here he applies <laughs> the, that gift to the story of Judeo-Christian civilization, from Moses and Solon to its culmination in the modern American Republic. It's a beautiful song, and Shapiro sings it beautifully. But this is no lamentation, no threnody. It is a hymn of hope, and when you get to its end, I promise you will feel better. Ugh. I think that's what it's really about. It's about making the reader feel better. Yeah. And finally, the last review is Nikki Haley, former permanent representative of the U.S. mission to the United Nations, who said, quote, Ben Shapiro knows the power of his voice. He stands up and fights for what he believes with time-tested ideas. The right side of history is thoughtful and well-reasoned, exactly what Shapiro critics don't want you to hear. They don't want you to hear what we are going to spend several months (laughs) reviewing and delivering. I guess we are the they there. I think we're part of the they. We are always part of the they, yeah, absolutely. I haven't gotten my Soros check this month, but I think we're part of the they. No, yeah, it's okay. That's all right. We'll be, we'll so we be got, fun. we got so much there that is close to the point, right? I think part of it is is this book is not for changing anyone's mind, right? No, Nobody who buys this none book, of these are. 
None yeah, exactly. N- nobody who buys this book is going in without already basically having these ideas and concepts internalized. Some but sense not of Judeo-Christian values, and I want to know, like, I want to argue with the libs, and this will give me the ammunition to do that, I think. Yes. I think that's the core of what this is supposed to be, and I think that's why, uh, and I know you don't have your copy of the book yet, but I've I've skimmed a lot of it. And it is basically, I mentioned an attempt at an intro to philosophy textbook for conservatives. That's basically what this is, by cherry-picking out all the philosophical concepts that appeal to them and mm. that are, are stilted towards their side. I think that's what he's attempting here, is to create something to just give them basic, catchphrasy arguments they can use in arguments that make them sound and feel confident and superior. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But because we haven't, we haven't got into it, and again, you don't have your copy, but you've known we're doing this for a while, and I know you know a little bit about Ben Shapiro. Yeah. What are your expectations for this book? That's a good question. I think uh, a lot of pretentious language is an expectation, certainly. I think it's interesting. I, uh, I haven't interacted with him in print. Um, <laughs> I've only interacted with him in audio and video. So I think it's going to be interesting to read his voice without the soundtrack of his voice, if that makes sense. Because a thing that he does is he talks fast. And that, like, in debate is often used to gloss over a point that you're making and and can be used to gloss over the lack of substance in an argument. You can assert things when you talk fast and then people don't have time to challenge you. And I'm I think it will be interesting to see how that translates to print and whether his, and not that his arguments particularly hold water for me when it comes to him speaking them aloud, but I, I, I think they will probably hold even less water when they're written down and, and, and scrutinizable at our own leisure. I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, he is known for his, his books are bestsellers and yeah. they're widely, uh, while they do get definite pushback from people who are, are right thinkers and, and, you know, have a head on their shoulders, mm. they are considered among the right wing to be the height of intellectualism, yeah. I think. I, I think don't know of I any writer who's, be... Sorry, I, I, I don't know of any writer who is more, um, I don't want to say feature, I want to say more like the, the pinnacle uh, was considered by the right to be their pinnacle of intellectualism. I don't know of anybody, and, and I would say the popular right, right? Because certainly yeah. there are people doing specialized work, and, and they're all fucking wrong too. But but I think among the popular right, Ben Shapiro is considered by them to be their pinnacle of intellectualism. That's alive. You know, people like Ayn Rand and, you know, other Edmund Burke, people like that, founders of conservatist ideo- conservative ideology would probably be more that. But yeah, certainly. I think um, I think it's going to be very debate teamy. is my expectation mm-hmm. of like, you know, setting up a point to knock down before the opposition has a chance to make that point themselves. So uh, I, I would imagine there's going to be a decent amount of straw manning, but actually hopefully... At least setting up a straw man to engage with, which is more than Donald Trump Jr. did. True, true. And I think so. So I mentioned that, that this is a strange area for us to get, be getting into because neither you or I have 
um, a big Any background in philosophy. Training, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, your education was in foreign languages and literature, uh, and I was political science and law, which I involves mean, philosophy. But I, I, did, I, I did some early religious philosophy. Okay. Medieval, medieval Spain, but that's, uh, you know. But I think my point is that we are, we're going to be trying and we're certainly going to have on some guests who have a bit more of a background in that area than us, because I think otherwise you and I are going to be, uh, let's, let's say, uh, walking into a dark cave with nothing but shadows on the walls uh, and <laughs> <laughs> not knowing exactly what we're doing. I got See? that one. I got, got a reference there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so uh, we certainly we do have coming up in the upcoming weeks Aaron Rabinowitz uh, of Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space, who's a good friend of the show from way back in the day, been on with us a bunch of times. Uh, so he's going to be coming on in a few chapters. But for the listeners out there, if there are people you have in mind uh, who have a, a philosophical training or knowledge that you think would be worthwhile for have a, us to have on the show, certainly reach out to us and let us know, and we can see about trying to get people uh, to come in and be involved. So you know where to reach us. We can be found on Twitter at NYGBCPod, on Facebook. You can also, of course, send an email to the email account, KevinAnnBenedict at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any ideas in those areas, make sure to let us know, because I think this is going to be fun. I think it's definitely going to be is, more yeah. fun I'm than excited. Triggered was. I'm excited. And I think it's going to take a little bit more effort on our part because we have to dig into a little of this philosophical stuff that we're not entirely um, familiar with, which is going to make it. It's, I think we're definitely going to learn more from this book, basically just because of the research we're going to have to do mm. uh, than we ever had in the past. So I'm excited for that. Are you excited for anything? I actually about am. This book? I'm actually excited. I'm excited to engage with with ideas, you know. And, uh, <laughs> You're excited to trot out your Ben Shapiro I am, impersonation. I am. I'm excited to trot out the impression. I'm going to perfect it, and I'm going to I'm going to suffer through it, and the audience is going to suffer through it with me as I get as I get it right. So. <laughs> well, I'm excited as well. I think this book is going to be a whole lot of fun. It is fewer chapters than books we've done in the past. This is only nine chapters long, uh, and they're they're not particularly long chapters. It's not a, an extremely long book. So I think we might get through this one a lot quicker than we did. That's how uh, he writes the book every three months, I guess. Yes. So I'm excited for this. I hope the listeners are all excited for this as well. Um, we're looking forward to it. And man, are we going to have something ahead of us, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed right. the show. Remember, if you can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, drawings to win our copies of the books we read, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Big Easy Blasphemy, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Becky Scott Fairley, Taru Tukanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all for being our patrons. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, I am Iron Man. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Book Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.